Let's get into God's word here, Exodus 15. Uh, last week as we looked at chapter 14, we looked in great detail of, uh, you know, an account of scripture that so many are familiar with. Um, you know, I, I don't know where it would rank, you know, if you ranked, uh, uh, you know, events in the scripture, but I would think that it'd have to be somewhere in the top 20, maybe in the top 10 in the sense of just people, you know, if you ask some stories in the Bible and whatnot, I think that would be a part because there's been movies, you know, more than one movie made about the event that we looked at last week. Uh, really, the whole exodus itself, uh, Israel leaving Egypt and the plagues and the Passover. And then, of course, as Israel's out in the wilderness, remember, God doesn't lead them the short way into uh, Canaan, lest they, you know, are to run into the Philistines that were a war's people, but he led them around the back way, and we saw that he brought them right there to the Red Sea. And uh, then we saw Pharaoh hardening his heart. And even though the people said, hey, just let them leave, we want to live, in his quest for power, said, we need to get them back here. We need to get our workforce back. And remember, he got 600 chariots and all his men and so forth, and they went out to pursue the Israelites and uh, immediately, Israel, upon seeing them coming, it says they cried out to the Lord and were like, all right, they're, they're praying. And then the next thing, they complained. <laughs> and their cries were not cries of help and adoration and, uh, you know, uh, recalling the faithfulness of God and the promises of God. But they began to cry out to Moses, you know, you just brought us out here to kill us. And whether they knew it or not, those complaints against Moses, they were complaints against the Lord. And we got to remember in that that ultimately our complaints as well, uh, oftentimes they're against the Lord. You know, uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're not called to take action at times, but we got to remember that a grumbling tongue and a grumbling heart is opposite of what God has called us to have, a heart of thanksgiving and a heart that rejoices in all things. And we talk about it oftentimes, we can rejoice in all things because God works all things for good for those that love Him. And are called according to his purposes. So as uh, again the Egyptians were coming. And then Moses begins to cry out. And God basically says listen. You're going to take your staff. And you're going to split this Red Sea in two. You're going to go through on dry land. And the Egyptians are going to be swallowed. And then God basically tells Moses. Quit praying now and go work and go do. And we talked about that. You know there's a time to pray. And then there's a time to action. And we always want to make sure that we go to action after we pray. We just don't want to then go to action first. You ever go to action first and then halfway through you're like, we need to pray. Better to start to pray first and then go out and go to work as God calls us to according to the word and the spirit of God as he leads us. So uh, again, the Lord put that barrier that was light to them. It was darkness to the Egyptians. He split the sea. And remember, we saw it wasn't, it wasn't. You know, historians have tried to explain away this event, because this event is recorded in history, and uh, they try to say that, you know, the land was, or the water was only about a foot deep, and so a wind came and dried it up, so they were able to pass through without anything sinking, and they try to explain this away, and it's been said before, and it's a very good observation, that if that's the case, then an even greater miracle happened, because the whole Egyptian army's drowned in a in a in water that was a foot deep so you know it really doesn't work and as we read there in the text it says that the sea split and it was as a wall to them so maybe some of those depictions maybe you've seen in a film before you know and and uh you know the awesomeness of that 
you know, a, a, a wall of uh, water, that's what the Bible says that it was. And of course, as they walked through, they came to the other side. And we talked about, again, how pride makes us foolish. We lose discernment when we walk in pride. It, it really blinds us. It, it, it brings, you know, for lack of a better word, it, it, it really causes us to make decisions that are not thought out, that are not godly, that are stupid decisions. After seeing all those plagues and everything else, the Egyptians now see this miracle of, I mean, when was the last time you saw a body of water split in two and people walk through it? And, you know, not an everyday occurrence going on. And Israel's going through. And at that point, you think they'd step back and say, okay, let them go. But what was it? Go get them. <laughs> they begin to charge in. And then we saw, of course, the walls came in and swallowed the army of the Egyptians, just as God said would happen. And uh, we kind of closed, we kind of started talking about this, and we closed talking about it, how, you know, they were between the rock and a hard place, the Red Sea, the Egyptian uh, army. God had given promises that he was going to see them through. But again, in the midst of the trial, they immediately forgot those promises, and they began to complain. And again, good thing we never do that, right? And yet, God, as he always is, was faithful. He brought them through. And then, again, this thing that looked to be set up for the destruction actually ended up being an incredible gift because not only was it in, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 12, talks about the baptism of Moses. And you could argue that they really weren't fully out of Egypt until they had gone through that. And they had left in faith by the blood of a lamb. That's what saved them. But as they went through that, you know, as they stepped out and they went through there, it was kind of that sign that we're officially leaving, kind of that outward sign, like we talk about baptism being, for us, our water baptism. But as they left, again, the Egyptian army swallowed up, and now all of a sudden, their oppressors for the last 400 years, who no doubt would have sought after them for the next 40 years, because God, knowing the end from the beginning, knew that they weren't going to take a step of faith and go into Canaan, even though tonight we'll see the Canaanites were shaking in their boots, um, the Lord knew he needed to deal with them. Otherwise, they would harass them for the next 40 years. And so they end up in such a better place. And we got to remember, the Bible talks about trials, doesn't it? It talks about them, tribulations and persecutions. And it's not just, you know, in a few places throughout the Scripture. We're promised them as followers of Christ. We're promised even fiery trials at times. But we got to remember that God is faithful. And absolutely God is allowing those to go on because he wants to work a good work in our life. And he doesn't want us to have to repeat those trials because of us resisting and complaining. But he wants us to be in a place of saying, okay, Lord, if you're going to bring me through this fiery trial, I want to step back. I want to ask what you would have of me. I want to open your word and then, Lord, burn away whatever needs to be burned away. Let's get through this trial. Bring me to where you want me to be because I don't want to go through this trial a second time. And I'll tell you, even in nature, listen, oftentimes a good forest fire. And I, I know in our age today, we kind of got a different view of things. And there's a lot of things that men do that even thinking they're saving nature actually hinders it. But a good forest fire is sometimes the best thing for nature. Things begin to grow that weren't grown before. A thing that's overgrown gets turned back and so forth. And you sometimes see flowers you haven't seen in 20 years because 
it's that heat that causes those seeds to germinate that normally won't. And you've got to remember, listen, as they went through this and were in a better place, God's true and faithful to us as well. Amen? Now we come here to Exodus 15, and <clears throat> the Lord willing, we'll look at verse 1 through 19. And now what do we see? We see them not complaining, but we see them rejoicing. We see them worshiping. We see them glorifying God for the victory they have. And as we get into this, we're going to liken this to the victory we have in Jesus Christ. And listen, the reasons why we should be all the more a worshipful people, because the victory we have, listen, it's over sin, death, Satan, and hell, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have eternal victory in him, and that's reason to praise and worship. <clears throat> so notice verse 1 here. <laughs> it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And so again, they're worshiping, they're praising, and we need to ask the question, listen, as they are worshiping and praising, should we be a people that worship and praise him? Now, when we start talking about worship and praise, boy, there's been a lot of distortion of that, a lot of so-called Christian worship and praise today, I think is more entertainment based it's more filling based it's more you know what done to set the mood for a service unfortunately at times i think it's done to set a move to manipulate people and so forth but we see in scripture that we absolutely are called to lift our voices to the lord colossians three sixteen. let the word of christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom Teaching and ad, uh, admonishing one another, notice here, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts, notice here, to the Lord. And listen, we got all the reason in the world to sing to the Lord, to sing praise to the Lord. Because listen, they're singing praise because they said the Lord has triumphed gloriously. And indeed, this was a glorious triumph, was it not? I mean, again, here's this army, you're a ill-equipped group of people that have never been trained in combat this is the greatest army in the world you have a sea here that you have no ships to pass over and God protects you from them as a cloud that's light to you dark to them he does a miracle this thing opens up a wall of water on both sides you walk through on dry ground after the wind's blowing it all night and then it crashes in on that army when they're coming after you is that not glorious a glorious victory and yet, again, listen, in Christ Jesus, we have a victory that's even more glorious than that. Because we're in a place where our sin has condemned us to eternal separation from God Almighty in a place called hell. That Jesus talks about and describes in great detail. Because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin nature, of us transgressing the law of God knowing that God's standard is perfection and us collectively and individually fall grossly short of perfection, do we not? Did anyone have a perfect day? Did anyone bat a thousand today when it comes to walking in pure righteousness? Since in practically, none of us practically did. And we had no hope in ourselves. You talk about between a rock and a hard place, there's nowhere to turn. But God again gave the promise of a son. And Jesus Christ came as God said that he would, the Father said he would, tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. And then he willingly went to the cross of Calvary and took the wrath through every single one of us upon himself. He was buried in the grave as he offered his life up. 
buried in the grave, left for dead. And yet, as he said, three days later, that stone was rolled away. And boy, you talk about victoriously triumphing over death. He rose on the third day. So that any who would call on his name, humble their heart and call upon the name of Jesus Christ, will be born again and saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord tonight? Can you say amen to that? Then listen, you have all the reason in the world to have the joy of the Lord no matter what circumstances you're in, what trials you're going through. And it's not that there can't be mourning and grieving too. We're called to that as well. We're called to be aware again of things that are grievous and there's things that sadden us, but absolutely to know that you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And as he has brought victory over those things, we have victory and we have an eternal hope. Listen, no matter what is going on, that is reason to rejoice. That is reason to praise and to know that's the hope of the world and whoever will put faith in Christ as well as born again is saved. Listen, we have all the reason in the world to worship him and we should. And when we gather together, we should gather together with a mindset, I want to sing praises to my God because he has triumphed victoriously and has given me victory. And listen, it says the horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. And it's very interesting because he speaks of our enemies being thrown into the sea or the lake. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that's an event that's to come. But we read in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, that at the cross he made a public spectacle. And it says in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle, spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And then it's interesting, our own sin. Our sin that separates us from God. Micah seven nineteen. And he, again, will have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. Isn't that awesome? Just as the Egyptian army, through what Christ has done for us, the enemy is going to be in the lake of fire. And absolutely, when we come to Christ positionally, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. Listen, that's reason to rejoice, to give God glory. And it's also a reason to say, I want to take up my cross now and follow him. And I want to walk in the newness of life that I have in Jesus Christ now. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I want to walk in that life that I have in him. Now notice verse 2. They sing, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So they're recounting the promises, the person, the attributes of God Almighty. Again, think about it like this. Any strength we have at all, the strength that you had today to get up and shower and go to work, do whatever you do, did and come here tonight, any strength we have is a gift from Him. But listen, as followers of Christ, it's not just that we have strength that He's endowed upon us as human beings. It's more than that. He is our strength. And there's a big difference between that, right? There's a big difference between give me strength and am I strong enough and God is my strength. Because again, God created all this. God holds all this together. God defeated sin, death, Satan, and hell. And Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against, against us? And we need to remember that. God is my strength. He just, just, just doesn't just give me strength. He is my strength. And then they said, He's also my song. And I thought about this, about songs. Listen, probably growing up, 
almost all of us had a song, right? Oh, that's my song. You know, I, I know more than one of you have been to the club before, right? And like, oh, that's my jam. I'm going to get out there. And people think about it. People identify with songs. It's very an emotional thing. I mean, song is a gift from God. We can use it to glorify Him or it can be abused. But I really think your song relates to your passion. And for so many people, it also relates to their identification. I mean, I've seen people transform because of music. All of a sudden, they become a different person. And they begin to identify not just with that music, but the culture of that music. And let me ask you tonight, with that being the case, what's your song? Is the Lord your song? Or is something else your song? Is the Lord your passion? Or is something else your passion? Is the Lord your jam, so to speak? Or is something else your jam? And if it's not the Lord, we need to step back and say, why is that the case? Have those things given me life? Have those things defeated my enemies? Do those things give me breath in my lungs? Do I have a future and hope in those things? Those things perhaps are gifts to enjoy, but absolutely they should not take precedent over them and at this point again this victory they're like he is our song he has become my salvation and for them again it was salvation a saving from Egypt and the Egyptian army and listen not only has the Lord saves us, saved us Jesus Christ is our salvation with no Jesus there is no salvation they say he is my God and again they're singing this collectively but they're singing it individually they're singing it personally and let me tell you, again, he has to be my God. He has to be your God. There's going to be no collective judgment. We're going to stand before him and he's going to say, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Can we say he is our God? And then finally, they say here in this verse, um, my father's God and I will exalt him. And listen, if that's the case, if uh, he is your father's God, rejoice. That's a reason to thank the Lord. And if that's not the case, then be in a place where you are determined that your son or daughter will be able to grow up and say, he is my father's God. He is my God as well. That those generational curses and those things handed down that are not of the Lord can be broken in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now notice verse 3. This is a scripture that a lot of people don't like. But it's a scripture that's true. It's a scripture that's true back then and it's true today. It says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And yes, when this is the Lord, it is speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, to be saved, we have to confess Jesus is what? Lord, right? And absolutely Lord, it's not lowercase Lord, like Sarah called Abraham Lord. It's not that. It is uppercase. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And listen, Jesus Christ is a man of war. And God is a God of war. We just spent, again, the last 10 chapters seeing God at war with Egypt. All those plagues, the Passover, the army being wiped out. Would you not call that war? That looks like war to me. Doesn't it look like war to you? And listen, again, it's still true today. In fact, all those that reject him, before we knew him, the scripture says that we were at war with him. That we were enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3.18. For many walk of whom I told you often 
And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And again, we know this started in the garden when man said, I want to be my own God and rejected the God of heaven and death set in. And there was a separation. Man said, I want to be my own God. And he was at odds with God. The war started there. We know that the Lord is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back. The book of Revelation speaks of great detail of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we know at the second coming, the church at this point has been raptured. There's been the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we come back with them. And what does the Lord come back to do? The scripture makes it very, very clear. He comes back to judge and to make war with the nations. Revelation 19, you can read about it in great detail. It's in many other places in the scripture. And what are the nations doing at this point? They gather together in the valley of Jezreel or it's called the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. And they gather together to make war against God just like the tower at the Tower of Babel believing that they are actually going to defeat God. They're going to be delusional. They actually are going to think they're going to be able to defeat God. That's how, again, stupid pride makes you. And it says, yet the Lord... Again, strikes them down with the sword that comes from their mouth and it speaks of the blood being as high as the horse's bridle. You better believe that he is still a God of war. Not popular today. People don't want to hear that today. People want to hear the Jesus of the shack who, hey, you know what, it's all good. But it tramples the cross of Calvary because you know what happened at Calvary? Jesus went to war for us. Jesus Christ went to make a way for sinners to be saved. And he did it while we were at war with him. That's how much he loves us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how awesome and how good our God is. And listen, glory is not going to be, heaven is not going to be filled with people who do not want Jesus to be their Lord. God's not going to force them there. And yet there's this mindset today and this False Christ being preached, I'm going to talk more about this here in a second, that God is going to, again, save all of creation, even those that reject him, who don't want him to be Lord. And the last thing I, you know, when I read the word of God, God does not force himself upon anybody, but he honors men's choices. But he is a man of war. Again, not very popular. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He has chosen captains who are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. Notice here, you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. And as mighty as the Egyptian army looked to Israel, listen, it was literally nothing for God. And the same is still true today. As daunting as the enemy can appear, his strongholds appear in our lives These things that look like giants that we can never have victory over, listen, they are nothing to the Lord. 
And this is why it's so important we don't try to tackle them in our strength, but we say, Lord, you be my strength. Because is it not true, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Now notice here as well, it goes along with verse 3, he is a man of war, and notice it says, he sent forth, he said, they say, you sent forth your wrath against what? Against his enemies. And absolutely, Jesus Christ went to war for us. Jesus Christ took the wrath to us upon himself. But you better believe if we reject him in this life, and this is the valley of decision, this life that we're living in here right now, if we reject him, we're going to be under that wrath forever. Again, not very popular today. That doesn't sell you 25 million books and get you a movie down, you know, uh, at, at, at the theater and whatnot. It, that kind of talk doesn't get you that. What gets you that is, again, this idea that he's not a God of war. He's not a God of wrath. You can do as you will and you will be fine. All the universe will be redeemed. But listen, that's unscriptural. That's unbiblical. And the Bible tells us not to be deceived with those empty words. Notice Ephesians 5.5, 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this is speaking about the unrepentant sinner. This isn't speaking about a true born-again Christian who's positionally right with God and practically they are working through things. This is speaking about the person who embraces their sin and says, I want nothing to do with you, Lord. Verse 6 says, notice here, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. He's not saying don't interact with them. He says don't partake with them. You've been forgiven. You've been washed. You don't go back to that. But notice, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. But boy, there's a lot of empty words today. A lot of deceivers today. And I know I've been harping on this a lot, but I'm going to harp just a little bit more. So bear with me. Because these things are so heavy on my heart. And it's, I'm just so grieved by these lies that are just abounding in the body of Christ. And how even many Christians that are grounded and know better are being deceived by empty words and want to go by emotional stories that again a fallen rejecting world a, a, a world that rejects Christ wants to embrace versus the gospel that's an offense to those that are perishing. Warren Smith who we've had speak here before he wrote an article March 9th for Lighthouse Trails and again it's about the author of The Shack and he just wrote a book called uh, lies we believe about God. I, it, it, don't speak for me, but he says we here, but don't speak for me. But I just want to read you this paragraph and compare it to what the scripture is saying right here. And this is Warren speaking here, and he quotes this guy, the, the P, William P. Young. But it says, in, it, in his just-released book, March 7th, Lies We Believe About God, best-selling author Paul Young openly describes himself as a universalist. In chapter 13, Young would have us believe that it is a lie to tell someone you need to get saved. Young asked himself, ask himself this rhetorical question, quote, are you suggesting that everyone is saved, that you believe in universal salvation, unquote? He answers, quote, that is exactly what I'm saying, unquote. Then Young goes on to teach that, quote, every single human being is in Christ, unquote, and that, quote, Christ is in them, unquote. 
With this unbiblical teaching, one recalls how Young put these same heretical words in the mouth of his Jesus character in the shack when he wrote, God, who is the ground of all being, dwells in all, around and through all things. Did we not just read, let no one deceive you with empty words? Those are empty words. And yet for some reason, a week ago on Sunday night, and not that I watch this channel, this guy's on TBN for eight hours with every, all of these Christian, basically rock star type heretics endorsing this nonsense. And see, to the fallen man and to the individual that does not want to stand in Scripture, this seems very loving. Boy, I like that God. I'm healed by that God because basically it's all going to work out in the end and everything's going to be saved. That really heals me. But see, that's a lie when you reject the cross that you know what it's going to do? It's going to damn so many souls to hell. And that's why it is not only not loving, it is, it is really the worst form of evil you're going to find. Because see, you open up the book of Satan, guess what it's about? The devil. The worst kind of lies are those that look the closest to the truth. And those are the worst types of deceptions. Let's stand in the word of God. He's a God of war. He went to war for us so that we can be saved. But if we reject him, there's a wrath that is coming. And the world needs to know that. And if we don't tell them that and we lie to them, are we loving anybody? Listen, if your neighbor's house is on fire, are you loving them? If you say, hey, listen, you're going to be okay in there. You're all going to eventually going to get saved. The fire department's coming. Or do you need to scream, get out? Because if you don't, you may perish. What's the more loving thing? Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Notice, the enemy says this. And boy, the enemy can talk a good game, can't he? Satan's called the father of lies. He's been lying since the fall of man. And listen, he is an incredibly good liar. And he wants us to believe the things that he whispers in our, in our ear and these things that he has injected into our society are true. He wants to do that to get us from stepping out in faith. Because listen, when we step out in faith, God honors it and the enemy gets wrecked. And God gave Israel an option. Again, to step out of faith, to take the blood of that lamb and put it over their doorpost and leave. And they gave him another step of faith. You can walk through the ocean, you know, the Red Sea. That was a step of faith. They didn't know when the water was going to crush in. They had to believe that God was doing that, and they had to take a step of faith through. But the enemy, again, tried to intimidate them to keep them from doing that, to get them to be paralyzed so that the enemy could come and do what he said he was going to do, destroy them. And that's why, listen, don't listen to those lies of the enemy. That's what they are, lies. Those things that come against you, to keep you from stepping out of faith, to get you to walk in fear versus faith, to get us again to walk in sin versus in obedience, because really, you, basically sin comes down to a, a lack of faith. We're not walking in what God wants. We walk in that thinking that we are going to find life in it when life's only found in Him. we got to remember that. Hebrews eleven six. 6, but without faith it's impossible to please Him. For you who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And they believed and they acted and they were rewarded, were they not? They were rewarded with their lives. They were rewarded with their freedom. And when when you walk in faith, you're going to walk in freedom. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. 
They sink like lead in the mighty waters. And again, the enemy's talk, it was just talk. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And notice here, every tongue which, raise, which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is for me, says the Lord. That's our heritage. Our heritage is that we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And absolutely, we need to take those thoughts captive when the enemy brings his threats and his lies. Verse 11. And again, they're singing this. This is a worship song. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And I think we can all answer this question, right? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Is not the answer, no one, right? There is none like him. There is none that even began to compare to him. And it's so important knowing that there's none like him that we don't try to make him, listen to this, like us. In our minds or in the way we present him again to the world. I can tell you a truth tonight that's, that's real. The world does not want a holy God. The world does not want a God. The world wants a God where, listen, everything goes. The world does not want a God that they would pay reverence to and fear. They want a buddy. They want a homie. They want, again, a God that would come think the way that they think. And yet there is no God that is like him and, again, we need to hold him in that reverence. Again, we need to understand that he is holy as they're singing. He is set apart from the way we think, from this fallen world. And absolutely out of that, out of a heart of reverence, give him praise and give him that glory that is absolutely due him. Notice verse 12. You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This is awesome because listen, not only does he save Israel and swallow their enemy, they're singing praise now that he had led them forth and I think they're beginning to believe those promises that he gave them that he would continue to lead them. And I think about this from time to time and I think it's something that we need to have before us and rejoice in that Again, not only has the Lord saved us, but he wants to lead us. He wants to be active in our everyday life. Directing us and guiding us. Giving us instruction from the scriptures, from his heart, and from his mind. Let me ask you tonight, are you following? As he wants to lead, are you following? Are you taking up your cross and following after him? Let's ask him for the grace and mercy to do that. Amen. Amen. Verse 14. The people here will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of the of Philistine, of Philist, Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Now again, God was delivering them out of Egypt. 
He didn't call them, though, to go walk in the wilderness for the next 40 years, right? Remember, he told them, I'm going to bring you to Canaan, where Abraham dwelt when he left Ur of the Chaldeans. And I want to give you that land as a land of milk and honey. I'm going to give you the cream of the crop. This is where you are going to be. This is where you are going to become a nation, you know, of nations that the Messiah will come forth from you to bring forth salvation to the world. And in this, again, they're singing these praises. It's coming out of their own mouth that upon hearing of this, all of these other nations whom Egypt basically ruled over because of that famine 400 years earlier when God used Joseph to make Egypt the superpower of the world, they're singing, listen, the Philistines and those in Edom and Moab and the Canaanites, they're trembling. Their knees are going to knock when they hear what our God has done for us. Oh boy, they're in the moment here, right? Listen, this is, this is Shekinah glory in the worship service, you know. God's being praised and they're believing it. Here's the problem, though. The service eventually came to an end. And God said, now it's time to go into Canaan and get your inheritance. And they said, we'll spend some spies in there to, you know, check it out. And listen, sometimes the worst thing to do is to send in a spy. Sometimes you just need to go and do it, right? Because again, 10 of them came back with a report. Listen, there are giants there and we can't overtake them. Wait a minute, what happened to this song you were singing? And it's very interesting because the song they were singing was true. God had laid them on their heart. And listen, those Canaanites were trembling because of the Lord. Yet Israel did not move forward because they feared those who trembled at their God who told them to go into Canaan. You follow that? They're trembling. Israel later would tremble and not go in because they heard there were giants in Canaan. And yet the Canaanites were trembling at the Israelites' God. And boy, oftentimes that's true today. Listen, the enemy of our soul trembles. The Bible says that even the demons believe and shudder, so I'm not making this up, and they shudder at the thought of us trusting God and what He has called us to do, yet how many times do we tremble at the enemy who trembles at our God? And I guarantee He was always trembling. He trembles at the thought of us trusting God and stepping out in faith, and yet instead of stepping out in faith and following God oftentimes we tremble at him while he trembles at our God think about that let that set into your heart I pray the Lord will bring it to our remembrance next time we have a fear of stepping out of faith 17 we're almost done here you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place O Lord which you have made for your own dwelling the sanctuary O Lord which your hands have established the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And again, it's the declaration that God would bring them into what was then the land of Canaan. Listen, the mountain of your inheritance, he speaks of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's at a high elevation. It's really a mountainous city. It's built on three mountains. It snows in Jerusalem pretty much every year, at least a little bit. And he's speaking of giving them that promise that land that is still theirs today even though our own supreme court does not want to acknowledge that jerusalem is the capital of israel and yet it is 
And we know God's brought the Jews back to Israel in these last days because the Lord, again, as this is in verse 18, shall reign forever and ever. And where, where, where will he reign forever and ever? In that Jerusalem. And going back, going back to Revelation 21, it talks about a new heaven, a new earth that eventually coming. And it says the city of Jerusalem will descend right in that place. And the Lord will rule from there forever and ever and ever. And again, in Christ Jesus, it says we will rule and reign with him. Verse 19. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters upon, of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And again, notice in this praise song that they're singing, that over and over again they recount the victory of the Lord and the victory they have in the Lord. And listen, this wasn't a song, this wasn't a one-hit wonder in the sense of, you know what, sung once and then forgotten. But this was to be sung over and over and over again in every generation. So that they would recall, again, the promises and the faithfulness of God, the victory in God. And listen, again, we have the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. And we need to continue to recall that victory and sing praises to God for that victory that we have in Him over and over and over again. This is why, listen, we should never grow weary of the gospel. We should never grow weary of preaching the cross. This is why I never, ever want to get away from preaching the cross of Calvary. Sometimes you may, may think I sound redundant, but let me tell you that redundancy is purposeful. I am purposely redundant about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it always needs to be before us. And we always need to be thanking the Lord. Because boy, it is so easy to get your eyes off of what Christ has done and begin to wonder in some strange fire. We're going to close, well, the teaching right now on prayer. And I'm basically going to give you guys, you know, an option if you got to get going to let you get going. I know the kids aren't going to be finished, though, for about 15 minutes. And uh, I want to encourage you, listen, to uh, get, in, get into a small group. And let's spend a little time in prayer. And then as you guys finish up in prayer, we can have a little bit of fellowship. And then before you know it, your kid's going to be yanking on your pant leg, asking for something. And... Uh, what not, or you're going to have to go find them outside because they're going to be on a slide or something. But do you give us some fellowship time with the Lord and with one another? Does that sound good? Awesome. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the word of truth. We thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And absolutely, we want to take these things to heart, Lord. Lord, we want to remember your promises, Lord, especially, God, when, you know, those lies come forth that want to keep us from stepping out of faith lord let us remember god the enemy trembles at the thought of us trusting in our god because indeed you are a rewarder for the of those who diligently seek you god do a good work in our lives god we thank you for this passage tonight lord we want to finish well here tonight so lord continue to bless our prayer and our fellowship 
And listen, tonight, if you're here, if you haven't called upon the name of the Lord, you've heard the gospel tonight. You've heard the bad news that we are sinners and that sin separates us from God who is holy. And if we die in our sin, absolutely, we're going to die under the wrath of God and be subjected to a place that Jesus Christ calls hell forever. There's good news, though. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus took the wrath to us. He paid the price for our sin. Listen, what, what we were judged with, Jesus took upon himself. But hear this, because he was without sin, death couldn't hold him, and he defeated it when he rose from the grave. Let me ask you tonight, is he your Lord and Savior? If he's not, listen, today's the day of salvation. It's time to humble your heart and ask Jesus to forgive you. And ask him to be the Lord of your life. And, and asking him to be the Lord of your life, you're turning from whatever your Lord is. To say, God, Jesus, I want you to govern my life. I want to be led by you. I want the Holy Spirit to be in my life. I want to be governed by the scriptures and so forth. And beautifully, there's no partiality with God. The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Call on him tonight. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for our time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.